The bottom line is I think we can beneficially affect their metabolism with cruciferous vegetables. So I think Brussels sprouts are everybody's friends. I eat Brussels sprouts every chance I can get. I put it into my juice in the morning and things like that. I think these cruciferous vegetables are very, very beneficial, uh, particularly the brassica family. I'm uh, fortunate to interview Dr. Terry Grossman, preventative medicine specialist, anti-aging doctor, and we're going to start off with the topic of estrogen metabolism and its impact on both women and men. So, Dr. Grossman, what have you seen in your practice? And I know you've had a great opportunity to review some really important uh, factors in terms of this problem we call estrogen dominance and the toxins related to that. What is it that you're using in your practice? And is it true, have you heard this fact that not only the xenoestrogens, the pesticides, the cosmetics, the fire retardant in the beds, but the sources of bottled water, uh, even fish has PCBs that are estrogen-like mimics. Now we're finding out that meat, chicken, fish, turkey, these are very highly hormonal animals, even if you don't inject them with hormones. So we might get almost 10,000 times more estrogen in our body exposure than at any time in history. Is, is that a probable fact? And what do you do about this? And what are the side effects of all that estrogen? Well, as time has gone along, I have become less and less of a fan of estrogen in all of its forms whether it's xenoestrogens from plastic bottles, from pesticides, from any of the things that you mentioned before, or even from a man or woman's own production, endogenous production. And I think that in youth, estrogen has a lot of value, particularly for women in terms of maintaining their femininity, in terms of maintaining their memories. I think it's good for their hearts, their bones. But as people get older, it seems as though the good Lord likes to play games on us and decides to say, okay, we're going to take the estrogen away from women and we're going to give it to men. So for most, wow. most men over the age of 50, their estradiol levels are significantly higher than their wives. Wow. And where estradiol may have value later in life for women, and I'm not even sure that it does. It, it, it may be that we should be looking at other hormones like progesterone and testosterone for women later in life, but in men, it's an absolute disaster. And we're seeing an epidemic of elevated estradiol levels in men, where I think you'll agree with me, optimal levels, we measure like 20 to 30, say. Correct. And if we can keep our estradiol levels in that in range. In the blood. In the, in blood. the blood, blood levels. I think that you know, estradiol does have value for men, I think it has bone effects, I think it has memory effects, I think it helps calm us down, I think it, it really does have some good effects. But so many men have levels 50, 70, 100, and higher. This is a risk factor for the epidemic of prostate cancer in men and estrogen dominance in women. I mean, I think women who have a lot of estrogen that's not mellowed out by other hormones like testosterone or progesterone, where they're estrogen dominant, that's why we're seeing this epidemic of breast cancer in women. So I think that this we're, we're swimming in a world of estrogen from many sources, and I think it really creates a lot of problems for us. And the two biggest hormone-related cancers, breast cancer in women and prostate cancer in men, 
is really can be laid at the feet of estrogen dominance. Yes, and there are some scientists that suggest that estrogen uh, and its harmful metabolites sometimes plays a role in almost all types of cancer. We're not just limiting it to just the what we normally call the estrogen-dominant cancers, the uh, prostate and breast. So with that understanding, what approaches can we take to detoxify, literally help these estrogens, these harmful estrogen metabolites, to go through their pathways and excrete out the body into safer forms? Well, I think anything that we can do to cause detoxification makes sense. So, you know, these type of metabolites come out in sweat. So when we exercise, we sweat them out. When we go into uh, the far infrared sauna, we sweat intensely. We get rid of these things. We obviously want to avoid the ingestion in the first place. So drinking water from glass bottles instead of these plastic bottles, uh, avoiding conventional chicken and things like that, avoiding all the plastic wraps in our foods is... You know, obviously it's impossible to do that completely, but to the degree that we can do, I think it's beneficial. And then, you know, using, uh, you know, supplements, I think, can be valuable. What are your favorite supplements and herbs that you've seen target estrogen dominance and help to resolve or reduce the risk of these problems related to estrogen dominance? Well, it's actually pretty complicated. Estrogen isn't just estrogen. We have 2-hydroxy and 16-hydroxy and 4, you know, all of these uh, metabolites. So there's quite, probably more than 40 different estrogen metabolites. Yeah, yeah, it's actually pretty complicated more than I understand. But the few that I do understand, the bottom line is I think we can beneficially affect their metabolism with cruciferous vegetables. So I think Brussels sprouts are everybody's friends. I eat Brussels sprouts every chance I can get. I put it in my juice in the morning and things like that. I think these cruciferous vegetables are very, very beneficial, uh, particularly the brassica family. Um, but then you have uh, certain supplements, like uh, the first one was I3C, endol 3 carbonyl, and then a cousin of that, DIM, DIM, dienomethane. I think these are very, very beneficial in changing the balance of estrogen, both lowering the levels and changing it from the toxic forms to the less toxic forms. Yeah, Dr. Edwin Lee, endocrinologist, states that he uses DIM and he, like pouring water. He uses it consistently with all of his patients. And of course, there was originally a debate, is IC3, indole-3-carbonyl better, or is DIM, methane better? And we looked at the it and The answer is both. Both, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I yes, like that. yes, the answer. So, so take both of them. <laughs> right. And so when you're looking at that, uh, once you detoxify the, say, 16 or the bad uh, hydroxyesterone to the good to hydroxyesterone, there's still more pathways to usher it through uh, methyl groups, uh, right. correct? Right, right. And, and now that we're beginning to do genomics testing on patients and looking at this COMT uh, pathway and the other, you know, it's, it's actually pretty complicated. We don't understand it fully, but we're getting a better idea. But we can look at the bottom line and we can come up with effective detox strategies that people can utilize because I think that we really need to reduce the, the sea of estrogen we're swimming in. Dr. Grossman, <clears throat> I'm gonna put out a, and challenge a, a therapy that's been used uh, for quite a while now. Apparently, urologists feel that the DHT and the testosterone is the bad guy, so they'll obliterate or remove particularly the DHT and androgens, and then they'll actually give hormonal estrogens to men. 
So when you've heard Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler of Testosterone for Life and Terry Hertog and Ron Rothenberg, UC San Diego professor, these individuals are looking at a, a newer set of research and going back through all the literature and we're starting to recognize what you had mentioned. How does estrogen relate to prostate cancer and prostate enlargement? And why would you even give estrogen to a patient who has already a problem with estrogen dominance? Yeah, this is a complicated issue, but there was actually, he wasn't even a physician, he was a mathematician from the University of Chicago, University of Chicago a guy by the name of Ed Friedman. And he wrote uh, a book in the last couple of years called The New Testosterone Cure. And in this book, he points out that the factors that initiate breast cancer and the factors that initiate prostate cancer are radically different than the factors that cause these diseases to grow. So for instance, in men, we know that for years and years and years, testosterone was poison. We really needed to stay away from it because it causes prostate cancer. And this was based upon flawed thinking because we do know that testosterone can help prostate cancer grow in a man that already has it. But to initiate prostate cancer, it does not do that. Who has more prostate cancer? Obviously, is it younger men or older men? Younger men with high testosterone do not, and older men with low testosterone do, and they actually have higher estrogen levels. As you exactly. So the, the scenario of a young man, high testosterone, low estrogen, no prostate cancer. Old man, low estrogen, high, low testosterone, high estrogen, more prostate cancer. So this really is the setup. So if we can keep in the, in the for men, the testosterone levels elevated, or not necessarily to high, but levels. good, youthful levels, and estradiol levels at healthy levels, like we talked about, 20 to 30 in the blood, I think this is a milieu where men can be most protected against prostate cancer and stay youthful for a long period of time. Similarly, we want to do things with women to keep their levels in a healthful level, because we know that estradiol doesn't necessarily cause uh, breast cancer in a woman, but if she has breast cancer, particularly the hormone receptor positive types, it will help it to grow. So it's a complicated situation, and we need to, when, when people are on hormone therapy, do regular monitoring. But as a general rule, I feel that, you know, what can testosterone do? It can go down one pathway and turn into estradiol. And it does that with the enzyme aromatase. And we can affect uh, the activity of that aromatase with high doses of zinc, you know, and, and I3C and DIM, like we talked about earlier, but it can also go in another direction. Testosterone can form dihydrotestosterone, DHT. DHT can cause acne, it can cause male pattern baldness, prostate growth, maybe even a risk factor for prostate cancer. So I think that we need to look both in men and women at that pathway, and, and that enzyme is 5-alpha reductase, and that can be affected by things like um, beta cytosterol. I'm glad you mentioned that because we use a product called DHT block and one of the principal ingredients is beta cytosterol. Yeah. So tell us about that. Well, beta cytosterol will be a 5-alpha reductase blocker, so the pathway from testosterone to the very active testosterone, DHT, and there are advantages to DHT, but too much DHT 
is not a good thing at all. Somewhere around 40 or so is probably Right, and I, I don't know what you use, but in my clinic, I say 75 is the upper limit. Yeah. You know, 50 to 75. Anybody over that, I want to bring it down. Is and, it a one to three ratio to testosterone generally as well? I mean, some people feel that uh, anything above that, you know, it doesn't make sense. That the ratios of hormones are very important, aren't they? I think the ratios are important. And if you do have a relative uh, higher amount of DHT, dihydrotestosterone, you know, the first thing we want to look at is the beta cytosterol, the saw palmetto products, things like that. Mm -hmm. I think they can help. They don't always help, and if they don't help, luckily we have the, uh, the 5 alpha reductase blocker drugs. And I think where a man will take uh, finasteride or dutasteride, they'll typically take one or five milligrams a day for various conditions. You can give them like one milligram a couple times a week, and that will effectively, very, very low doses, can block that pathway so that you keep testosterone high and DHT at a healthy level as well. That makes sense. So when you're monitoring the hormones also, let's backtrack a moment to estradiol. Um, typically the doctor will look in the blood. Uh, however, are you noticing that many physicians are moving to using urinary hormone metabolites to look at the subgroups and the breakdowns of the different types of androgens, the different types of estrogens, and even cortisol metabolites. So are you using that to an extent, or you, some of your colleagues are? And what do you I know that many that? of my colleagues are using urinary mm -hmm. uh, hormone determination because you get a lot more information. I think that urinary levels have a lot of value. Personally, I think that patients prefer it if you can just get a blood test, but if it's a complicated situation, I think that doing the 24-hour urine collection can give you more information and you can really zero in on it. And now there's the 4.4 collection, just uh, uh, pee on a uh, little cardboard uh, morning, midday, afternoon, evening, so they don't have to collect it for 24 hours and then send that off and we're getting some pretty accurate reports back comparable to 24 hour and, and actually more of a interval, like with cortisol, as you know, changes throughout the day. So now you've got four point cortisol like you would four point uh, saliva. Right, no, that would be very, very good because now that you mentioned cortisol, I think that you know, fundamental to so many diseases that we see is excess stress. Oh, without question. I mean, stress is a killer. Um, in my in my practice, you know, a lot of people are very high performing individuals. They're looking for optimal wellness. They're successful in their businesses. They're exercising. They're eating well. They're doing everything right. They're taking supplements. They're doing detox. But the one thing I think that so many of them are doing a bad job on is controlling stress in virtually all of them, if I say, what's your stress level? It's off the chart. And I think that cortisol is an incredibly toxic hormone in our bodies, and we need to in take- In high levels. We need a Yes, yeah, so we need a little correct. bit. We need a little bit. But, you know, back, you know, we're, we're cavemen and cavewomen, and back then, you know, we laid around and relaxed all day long, and every once in a while we got a jolt of cortisol when danger occurred, or we needed it. But now we're just like operating at a fairly high level of cortisol all the time, and I'm not sure that's very happy. Healthy for us. And Dr. James Wilson, in his book, Adrenal Fatigue, states that there's a point, though, even worse, where, yes, you're living on a cortisol rush, but then eventually you can't produce enough cortisol, it drops, and then you're living on adrenaline, which he states is even more harmful hormone to live off of. That oh, is, oh. you know, fight or flight, but you're constantly in this fight or flight uh, feeling. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why a very common condition like sleep apnea is so devastating in terms of being not just a risk for daytime sleepiness, but it's a risk for heart attacks and high blood pressure. Why is that? Because when you sleep at night and stop breathing, characteristic of sleep apnea, 
which I think affects close to 25% of the adult population. What, re, you know, your heart rate slows way down during this period of time. What gets things going again? It's a jolt of uh, adrenaline. So you're just like constantly giving yourself these jolts of adrenaline through the night, which is very toxic for your heart. So you're right. This all started from the four-point testing. Mm -hmm. When we do the adrenal stress index, we look at, you know, typically salivary levels because no one wants to do blood four times a day. And we'll, you know, healthy people, which is so rare <laughs> when I do the tests, we'll start with very high levels in the morning, mm -hmm. drop by about half at lunchtime, be relatively low at supper, and then by bedtime be almost nothing. This is the normal curve. But I doubt that one in five patients that I test has anything like that. Most people, they're almost flatline. Or what if they have initially very major difficulty getting up in the morning and their cortisol levels are measured extremely low, below optimum levels, and they barely start to pick up in the afternoon as they raise towards the evening, then they're kind of night people. They're finally coming awake and uh, they stay up too late and then it starts a vicious cycle all over again. So do, according to Dr. Edwin Lee, he's uh, stated that adrenal fatigue really does exist. Many endocrinologists deny that it exists. But uh, apparently uh, the evidence is starting to show that people do have chronic fatigue and oftentimes related to poor adrenal function. Right, I think that the problem with conventional endocrinology thought is they're very black and white. Things are, you know, they look at the, the normal levels of testosterone and they'll say, okay, it's 348 to 1198 for men. If your level is 351, you're normal, nothing to worry about. Whereas most men who have a testosterone level of 351 do not feel very good. And they'll do the same thing with cortisol. They don't believe in what we refer to as hypoadrenalism, which affects so many people because they're stressed out for so long. What they do believe in, it's the same white or black idea. Either you have Cushing's disease, you have adrenal fatigue, or you don't. Whereas I think us in or you the, have Addison's, the you know Addison's or whatever the case, whatever disease you may have, uh, it's 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 you either have the disease or you don't have the disease. Mm -hmm. And for us in complementary medicine, we like to look at the grays. And so many people they don't really have adrenal fatigue, Addison's disease, but they do have you know adrenal let down it just doesn't work as well as it should and i think these people you know you you know normally it should be high in the morning and then go down through the day you mentioned a case where it's low in the morning and it goes up at night i think for people like this they could take some natural slow release cortisol or licorice extracts or things like that in the morning to boost the levels to not so much to treat the condition as much as to rest the adrenals so the adrenals can go to hawaii and take it easy for a while and after about six to 12 months, they'll get better. And the other thing we can do is if they're upside down and the levels go up at night and they're night owls, is use things like light boxes or exposure to sunlight so that people can kind of reset their circadian rhythms. I think both are good. That makes sense. And of course, when you look at uh, the use of say, uh, thyroid glandulars, we know that's effective for thyroid, uh, adrenal glandular, pituitary, thymus, uh, again, Dr. Wilson stated that about 80% of the glandular with tracers ends up in the actual organ to rejuvenate that organ. 
he believes that you can actually repair these organs in those people with chronic fatigue and extreme uh, distress disorders. So when we're looking at that toolbox, uh, echinacea, uh, ashwagandha, uh, some of the uh, silymarine for the liver, and DMG, dimethylglycine, um, in the adrenal cortex, how do you feel about uh, the intervention with these herbs and some of the glandulars? Well, I think that they make a lot of sense. I think you're right. Uh, an additional problem that is incredibly common uh, among our patients is fatigue. Mm -hmm. Particularly, not just, you know, fatigue itself, I think, is a presenting complaint for perhaps a majority of patients that Vast come to see. Vast majority. Yeah. And then chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a devastating illness affecting up to 8% of the population at large. And these people are trashed. They can't work. I mean... And coffee doesn't work for them. It makes it worse oftentimes. They really are in bad shape. I, I, I like to follow, you know, uh, Dr. Teitelbaum's uh, protocol, where, which he calls shine. And the first thing he works on is help people get quality sleep. And then the second thing he works on is hormones, which what we're talking about, inflammation and infections, nutrition and exercise. So with the hormones, I think that for all of our patients with fatigue, particularly those with chronic fatigue, we need to look at all of the different hormones. The endocrine hormones that you mentioned, uh, the sex hormones, so the testosterone, the estrogen, the progesterone. We really need to look at the thyroid hormones. So if you're talking about glandulars or thyroid replacement, natural thyroid replacement, I think that's absolutely essential. And also uh, the adrenal hormones, the cortisol, and then what you referred to as the adaptogens. So the things like the ashwagandha, like the ginseng, cordyceps, things like that, I think that they can help a lot. So we can provide some support and we can also supp supply the hormones if we need to, whatever, whatever is the best for that particular patient. Dr. Terry Grossman, that was an amazing discourse about chronic fatigue, hormone intervention. And please uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel and comment uh, about this interview and any other facts that you want to learn about or questions you want to ask, please uh, interplay with us. Thank you and wait for our next segment with Dr. Terry Grossman and other expert anti-aging physicians. Thank you. Hey guys, I got to tell you, the new coaching program has come out and we're excited about the coaching program. Because the coaching program is at nickdelgado.com, we'd love to help to guide you, to coach you on your health journey. And now you can apply for the special coaching program. And you can also get our special book, Immune Rejuvenation. Just leave your name and email, and you're going to get one of the best books written on this whole subject. We are excited to know, Anne, and I got to tell you that you know, the whole idea of immune rejuvenation has come.